men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. Grape? No, I don't like to eat between meals. I'll roll down the window. A faceless guy rips off your clothes, and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I vary it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Sure. I need to talk. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went night over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing, to and then... To make a long story short, we, we did, did it. They did it. The challenge. I'm difficult. I'm too structured. I'm completely closed off. But in a good way. And I'm gonna be 40! <laughs> when? <laughs> Someday. In eight years. men. Charlie Chaplin had babies when he was 73. Yeah, but he was too old to pick them up. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask ourselves, is it yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined for a second time by my friend Rob Kelly, whose show I stole from him. Hey, Rob. <laughs> I really don't think I pioneered the idea of a movie review podcast, but if you want to give me that credit, I'll, I'll be happy to take it. Well, I mean, I had the idea to do this show for a while before I started to do it. And then I heard you, you know, you started the Film and Water podcast some t- sometime between when I had the idea and when I actually executed it. <laughs> and what I got to say, you know, I don't, I don't consider us to be competitors in any way because we're doing it for fun. And if, I guess if we were competitors, we wouldn't be willing to appear on each other's shows. Uh, <laughs> It'd be like a spy versus spy thing or something, sabotage your Skype account, things like that. That could be happening. I don't know. I am kind of dim-witted when it comes to that kind of thing. But, you know, and I don't mean to put myself down, but when I listen to the Film and Water podcast, that's what I aspire to be on this show. Well, that thank you very much. That's absurd because I like the Is It Jaws very much. But, again, I will take the compliment. Thank you. And anybody who does not listen to that uh, don't stop listening to this show, but start listening to that one too, because believe there's, me, it's well worth it. Thank you. Yes, there's room in your life for more than one movie podcast. Absolutely. And if anybody doesn't recall, Rob was on with me, helped to help to help me pioneer this show. Uh, second episode that was posted, but the first episode that was recorded as we covered the four Jaws movies. And obviously, on a show called "Is It Jaws," that's a key key episode. <laughs> so. When Carrie Fisher passed away, I was driving in my car and I was listening to an episode of the Film and Water podcast in which you did a tribute to Carrie Fisher. And while you were doing it, I started thinking, okay, I, I kind of beat you to the thoughts. I started thinking of, oh, what, outside of Star Wars, what Carrie Fisher movies do I really like? And I thought the Blues Brothers, and then all of a sudden I thought, oh, When Harry Met Sally. I love When Harry Met Sally. So you know what? When I get home, I got to ask Rob if he wants to be on Is It Yours to cover When Harry Met Sally. And then, sometime after I said that, I'm listening to the show, and you start saying, I love it when Harry went out. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, then now, now it's absolute. i got to ask you to be on here. So uh, I'm glad you, you accepted my invitation. And we'll start off with, what was your first exposure to this? I didn't see this in the theater, so I must have just seen it, you know, like on VHS, if you people can remember what that was. Uh, but I remember the first time I saw it, I thought it was terrific. I thought it was uh, like just great. And that uh, 
that opinion has not changed over the decades since I since I've rewatched it. It, it holds up to rewatching uh, quite a bit. And this is, you know, yeah, Carrie Fisher. My favorite thing, of course, is her as Princess Leia. But this and the Blues Brothers are, are neck and neck. I mean, the Blues Brothers, it's kind of a different thing because it's such a goofy performance. But but I love her in this movie as, you know, basically Meg Ryan's, you know, best friend, sidekick kind of thing. Uh, she plays uh, Marie and. She's wonderful. She's hilarious. She's warm. She's just simply great in this movie, as is everybody. So this is just a great movie all around. Yeah, I, I agree. And and I guess we're not going to totally focus on Carrie Fisher through this whole thing. It's just she's what brought us to the episode. But I think she and Bruno Kirby, who play the almost stereotypical roles, uh, in, in some ways they could turn out to be rote characters if they weren't as charismatic as they are. Uh, and I think as this is written, if they weren't such good actors, they could have been dislikable because they kind of were set up on a double date by Harry and Sally, <laughs> and then they abandoned the one they were with so that they could go with each other. And I just think it's the fact that they're both such charismatic actors, and unfortunately, they've both passed away since then, Yeah, yeah. Uh, that I think they stepped up and they took what was essentially a rote character in each of in each case and extended beyond that and made themselves kind of integral to the movie in their own way well yeah i mean the the, the bruno kirby and carrie fisher have tremendous chemistry which is uh, really remarkable considering how few scenes they have together and yeah you the scene you mentioned about when harry sets uh his friend jess up with sally and sally sets marie up with Harry and they find out that Harry and Marie and Jess and Sally have like nothing to say to one another. I've been on dates like that. And you know, it's, it's very, very, you know, relatable where you're just like, there's nothing wrong with this person. You just have nothing to say to them. And then Jess and Marie find that they have a lot together. And then that's the scene where Marie quotes something she heard in a magazine. And Jess is like, I wrote that. And she's like, what? Get out of here. And they instantly like each other. And one of the things that really touched me about their uh, their performances in the movie is, you know, I saw this movie in, you know, again, like when it came to home video. So you're talking 89, 90. I was, you know, a, a young guy back then and I was single. And, you know, I had aspirations as to what kind of relationship I wanted to be in in my life. That's what movies partly do for you. And. Like, I liked their relationship because they recognized that they liked each other instantly and they didn't, like, screw around. You know, they didn't, like, put up all these barriers, which Harry and Sally do throughout the, you know, 90, 120 minutes of this movie. Jess and Marie instantly like each other. They acknowledge it and off they go. And every scene you see of them after that, it's them. They're moving in together. They're in bed together. They're, like... They're they're throwing a party together like they just instantly went with it. And that some that was something that I aspired to was like to have a relationship like that to where it was just simple. You like one another. Let's not let let's not let, you know, the, the craziness of life get in the way. And the scene where after Harry and Sally sleep together and then they call Jess and Marie to tell them what happened. There is just an absolutely wonderful moment, and it's not at all meant to be funny, but it's after Harry, Harry and Sally get off the phone with the two of them, and it, you know, the, the, the night they spent together didn't go the way they wanted it to. And they're laying, Jess and Marie are laying there together, and Marie turns to Bruno, Marie, Carrie Fisher turns to Bruno Kirby and says, Promise me I'll never be out there again. And he says very quietly, you will never be out there again. And he like kisses her on the forehead or something. And mm -hmm. it's beautiful. It's a really beautiful moment of like, that's, it's like, it's just, this is how much they love one another. Don't not worry. Is it beautiful. I'm always going to be there. Not only is it beautiful, it's very real. It, it yes. plays on emotions that you really have in the dating world and in relationships. And I think that's one of the beauties of this movie. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, the last time I watched it in preparation for us to get together and talk about this, uh, instead of just watching it straight up, I watched the Rob Reiner commentary. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever watched it with that. I, I think I did many, many years ago. 
But he, he talked in a lot of the scenes that went on about how, you know, Nora Ephron and himself and Billy Crystal and uh, I don't remember who Rob Reiner's writing partner is, uh, but oh, I guess Andrew Scheinman, I think that's who it was. He's listed as a producer, so I'm, I'm thinking that might have been him. But that they all kept throwing in real-life experiences that they had. And I think having experienced a lot more life between when I first saw this movie and now, uh, you know, not to put too much personal <laughs> information in there, but having been through getting married, getting divorced, getting involved in another relationship, having children, raising children uh, – I can watch this with a whole whole different eye than I could in 1989 when it came out. Sure. And in 1989, when it came out, I saw it, you know, that was before I was married, you know, still looking for the right relationship at that time. And it was just an an entertaining rom-com to me. Mm. And and it was very entertaining. I I liked it very, very much. I loved the music in it. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. Uh, But the, the, characters and and how appealing they are it all just was i thought it was terrific i it was always you know just a, a real good movie as far as i was concerned but then watching it now with a much more critical eye and trying to see moments like what you just talked about that moment with uh, with jess and marie there's so much of that in this that it really just i guess it could have been overpacked with that and it could have it could have flopped because of it but it's there's so much in there and it's so smoothly laid out that it just plays so well i know when i went through my breakup i always thought of the one thing or one thing i always thought of that just kept coming back to me was the conversation that billy crystal has with meg ryan where he asks her or she asks him i don't even remember which one asks which if they still sleep on the same side of the bed Oh, right. That they always slept on. And you know what? That was something I was conscious of because I saw this movie. Mm. And and when I became single again, I made a conscious effort. I'm sleeping in the middle. (laughs) I I am am reclaiming my territory. Exactly. And 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 every time I did it, I thought about this movie (laughs) because that was where I had heard it, you know? Uh, But there's so many things like that that really are real-life feelings uh, and I guess, you know, we could start at the beginning and the movie opens up with basically Harry and Sally first meeting each other to share a ride. And I guess they were going from Chicago to New York, was it? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Well, was it from New York really to Chicago? Long. Something like that. It was it was it was definitely a long ride from basically they had just finished college, I believe. And they were, uh, you know, on their way for the, to start their lives and they were going to a similar place. So they shared a ride and they they uh, they got along, but they didn't. And again, this could be so just run of the mill because there, there are a lot of things in this that are or could be formulaic. And I think they go above that because the dialogue is so well written and it's so well so well uh, acted by the, the whole cast in this thing. I was going to just say Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, but again, Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby also, they just bring it to such a level. So then, then they leave not particularly friendly with each other, and eventually they run into each other by happenstance over, I don't know how many years are supposed to have gone by between the initial opening and, and later on. Yeah, I think it's like five or six years where they've become established in their careers and their haircuts are different. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the comments on, on uh, Rob Reiner's uh, commentary, talking about the wig that Billy Crystal wears at the beginning of it and how much he hated it. And, uh, you know, that, that he, to him it felt so unnatural. Uh, but it did make him look younger. I, I think they did a pretty good job of with the hairstyles and the clothing and everything of making them fit in fit in with what they're supposed the age they were supposed to be without ever really sticking it in a particular era. Well, yeah. you know, Meg Ryan did have that feathered look that probably would not fly today, but I, I do think it's kind of almost got a timeless feel to this. She looks a lot like uh, Farrah Fawcett <laughs> in the initial scenes. She's got that seventies bouncing and behaving kind of thing. I mean, you know, yeah, you, you don't really buy that Billy Crystal is playing 18, but it doesn't matter because you can't recast it because it's it, this movie's all about their chemistry. Exactly. And you have to you have to see them at 18. You know, you can't you can't recast it. So it, it's fine. You just it's kind of like uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Howard Stern movie Private Parts, but like 
he plays himself in college at 18 and he says over the voiceover, I know I don't look 18, but just go with it, folks. Like, he's just acknowledging like, OK, yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, and I totally buy into that. I did. I was not bothered by that at all. And from the way you're saying it, I, I think you <laughs> you feel the same way. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then we get to the point where they are established. They run into each other by chance. And both of them have had their serious relationships since college. She was dating with somebody and apparently dating somebody and apparently living with him. And I think, he, I think it's Joe is the guy's name. Joe, yes. And Billy, uh, Billy Crystal got married to Helen, Helen Hilson. She's Aaron keeping Hilson, her name. Right. <laughs> and, and, and even that, you know, that's something that I, you know, I talked about how the lines just seem so natural to me. That says to me, the way he says that says to me, he's embarrassed by the fact that she wouldn't take his name or he feels somehow lessened by the fact that she wouldn't take his name. So he's got to kind of make the excuse immediately. Helen Hilson, yes. she's keeping her name. Yeah, I mean, he's he's already feeling a little weird because, of course, in the opening scenes with with Sally, he goes on and on about how he's not going to get married and like, you know, relation like he's basically very just sex centric uh, and he's very unromantic and she's the one who's romantic. And then we meet them later. And of course, he's getting married. But yeah, you're right. The way he follows up that line, uh, clearly it's bothering him a little bit or it, it, he senses some feeling of insecurity about the fact that she's not changing her name. Yeah, and which, and you know, I, I don't mean to make that as a commentary on whether or not anybody should take anybody's name. I just think it's in this particular movie that's that's the emotion that I get from that. But I think it's nicely played. It's not they're not beating you over the head with it. It's it's fairly subtle, uh, and yet it's right there for you to see if you if you're looking for it. And so they they meet up, then they separate again. Then when they get together again, which is probably I don't know maybe two years later. Uh, at that point, they've both broken up with their respective significant others. And nicely, they don't start dating. I think that's that's a key there. They don't, they don't just all of a sudden become a couple. They become best friends. And I think that's that's great the way this movie does that. Yeah, they start appreciating the fact that they are getting an insight to the other gender without having sex get in the way, even though Harry says in the opening salvo, that sex always gets in the way because I, I mean that, that exchange between them about, uh, you know, sex gets in the way and she's like, no, I have tons of male friends and there's no sex involved. And he goes, yes, there is. And she's like, are you saying I'm having sex with these men and not know about it? And his whole bit is, well, they want to have sex with you. They're just not saying it. And, you know, Sally's like, that's not true. And he's like, yeah, trust me, it's true. And that, that's one of those moments that as a guy, you shake your head and go, yeah, that's pretty much true. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I like about it, though, is the movie never never registers a position on that. Yes. Because yeah. they do end up having sex get in the way. But they also, like, you know, there's that long stretch where they are just friends. And it's clear that neither of them is looking to get involved with each other. In fact, to the point where they fix each other up with their best friends. Yeah, I mean, despite the fact that this was directed by a man, it was mostly written by a woman, as you mentioned, or Efron. So this movie equally has the view of male and female. This this is not one of those movies where the hero is the guy and the woman in question is sort of the manic pixie dream girl. Sally is equal. This movie is a 50-50 movie. Uh, yeah, we absolutely. get just as much insight into Sally's life as we do Harry's life. And that's I think that's what made it such a such a hit because you just didn't really get to see that a lot in movies, especially as well-written as you've got it when it's by Nora Ephron and stuff. But but Rob Reiner was a sensitive guy. He's a sensitive filmmaker. I mean, he was on a real roll in the 80s. I mean, Spinal Tap and The Sure Thing and The Princess Bride. Stand, and by, when me. Harry, Stand by Me, When Harry Met Sally. I mean, he did all those in a row, which is just unbelievable. I mean, in terms of the quality of the films and the diversity of the oh, films. and A Few Good Men. A few good men. He did that after the. Yeah, I mean, he was on a real roll from the from the early '80s into the early '90s, and you know, he was he's a sensitive guy. You know, he was the he was the fuzzy headed meathead, you know, liberal on all in the family. So he's a guy that you know he's not a male centric. I guess he isn't to some degree, I'm sure, but I mean, he he has a sensitivity towards women's issue. He knows how to direct, you know, properly, so he can tell the story uh, and give both 
you know, both sexes equal weight, which is, again, it's that's rare in movies. And he, he talked in the commentary how I, I don't know where this falls in relationship to his divorce from Penny Marshall, but he was in between relationships mm. when he made this movie. In fact, he met his wife, at least she was his wife when he did the commentary. I have no idea where, what his relationship status is at the moment, but he met his wife while they were filming this movie. Hmm. So he had a lot of relationship things, relationship issues that he was able to say, hey, this is the way this is, this is the way that is, for them to add it into the script and to, to play with there. So there, there was a, you know, from the way he talks about it, there was a lot of introspection by everybody who participated in this script. And again, I think as somebody who's now lived some aspects of life that they show in this movie, uh, I think it's very real and very done very, very well. It's a lot of the emotions are there. Uh, you know, you, you have the scene where, uh, where Billy Crystal is telling Bruno Kirby about how his marriage split up while they're at the Giants game. <laughs> and, and, and they're doing the wave during this doing the serious wave. conversation. Yeah. And, Bill, and, and Rob Reiner talked about how that really happened to one of them. Not, oh, necessarily, wow. <laughs> not really, not necessarily that they were saying how their marriage broke up, but they were having a very serious conversation at a ball game and the wave was going on and they, <laughs> they, they would participate in it as it, as it was going on. And it just, like I said, it, play, it plays that way. It plays very, very natural as they do it. That was the don't F with, with Mr. Zero. No, Mr. Which is one of the great all time phrases and all like the, I've, I've tried to work that into my life that don't F with Mr. Zero. <laughs> it's, it's hard to, but it's just, it's so memorable. Like so don't you're F saying that Mr. Zero knew about your divorce before you did. I said, Ooh, that's harsh. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I'm a writer. I know. <laughs> I'm a writer. I know that's hard. Yeah. That, that's a terrific scene. That's a terrific. Uh, it scene. really is well done. And then there's, you know, the reverse is kind of the way it's working with Marie and, and Sally. Because Sally is more or less comforting Marie because she's been with some guy who's never going to leave his wife for her, but she's holding on to the hope that that's going to happen. So it's less Marie being the support for her than the other way around. Right. The guy, I love that. They keep saying she's, he's never going to leave his wife. Of course he isn't. And she's like, I know that. But yes, she won't dump the guy. And so, yeah, that's, you know, yeah, Marie's got her own problems, too. Yeah, exactly. And and that goes I think that goes to make it more realistic when you get to the scenes like you talked about earlier about how she never wants to be out there again. And there is there is some aspect of that too. When when you're in a long-term relationship that goes away, uh you don't want to go back out there. I I got to tell you, many years ago, years and years ago, I was in a relationship with someone and I was not happy at all. And my I had a a couple of friends who were really had front row seats to the misery of the relationship mm. and they were they were a couple and and I was having a conversation with them once and I was debating we were me and the male friend were talking about you know how bad the relationship was going and the female uh, of the couple was like well why don't you just dump her like if you're so unhappy just don't cuz she was very much like that she was very much like the minute she was unhappy she cut people loose and I was like hemming and hawing and you know, at the time I wasn't dating a whole lot. And so, you know, I had a typical guy response, which was, is being miserable worse than being in no relationship at all? And when I mentioned that, because that was really what kept me from sort of ending the relationship was like, do I want to go through the misery of being alone again? The male friend completely understood what I was saying. And the female she was like, you guys are nuts. <laughs> you know, like yeah. she, just could, she could not relate to that line of thinking. But luckily, my male friend was like, yeah, no, I totally get it. Because when you're a guy, you don't necessarily know when the next relationship's coming. <laughs> you don't know how, much, how long you want to be single. So it's like, you know, it, it, that's, that's one of the magic elements of this movie is you feel like you're really getting some dollops of wisdom in, inside the room, inside of all the laughs and the characters and everything else, you're getting some some really uh, hard won wisdom, and that that's a that's a that's a great thing to come out of a movie. That's hard to do. It's hard to make a good movie anyway. But then to give, you know, a movie that you could actually apply certain things to your own life, that's that's really hard. Yeah, and and as we're both saying here, it it happens repeatedly in this movie. Mm -hmm. There's so many realistic things and realistic feelings that come out uh, that. This is one of those movies where watching it just to watch it, it was very entertaining. Watching it as a, 
and I got to put up, you know, I don't do air quotes, but if I was doing air quotes, I'd say movie critic, uh, you know, doing a movie, a movie appreciation podcast and watching it with a critical eye, at least I see so much more depth to this movie. It's not a simple rom-com. Yeah. There's, there's yeah, this- real emotions at play here. Yeah, these are these are as close I would say to well maybe not as close but this is you know these these are pretty Harry and Sally are pretty close to real people, and most movies don't feature real people. Um, I mean, a little bit about the performances. Like uh, one of the things that um, my partner Shag and I talked about on an episode of Film and Water where we did Joe versus the volcano, which is of course another rom com, a completely unrealistic one with Meg Ryan. Like Meg Ryan's career didn't really sort of like last. Uh, you know, like she's really kind of not around much anymore in terms of the way of movies. But so it's easy to kind of, you know, like, oh, Meg Ryan, you know, she's a relic of a different time. But when Meg Ryan was good, she was great. And she's terrific in this movie. Uh, she is, you know, she's wonderful. And and like another scene, uh, my favorite moment of, of of hers in this movie is when she talks to Harry about why her relationship with Joe broke up. The, and we the, never do sleep on the uh, kitchen floor thing. We never the, the, we'll hold, yeah, that. Well, the whole bit about that the, her and Joe, the reason they never had kids is so they could whisk off to Spain at a moment's notice or have sex on the kitchen floor. And, you know, and, and they were supposedly happy with that. And then she talks about and this this whole scene is just on Meg Ryan. Uh, it's just one long scene on her. And, and when she talks about that, she went out with. Uh, Joe and they took out her friend Alice's kids or, and they had uh, like, they went to the zoo or something and they're in the back of a taxi cab and they're playing the I spy game. I spy a mailbox. I spy a lamppost. And the little girl that, that Sally is with looks out the window and sees a mom and a dad and each kid. And the, the, one of the kids is on the dad's shoulders and the little girl with Sally goes, I spy a family. And Sally's like, I just started to cry. And, you know, not to get too terribly, you know, like personal, but like, I'm never going to have kids. That's not in my, that's not, that's not going to happen in my life. And I'm happy with that. That's a hard fought decision. But at the same time, like that moment gets to me of, I completely got why that bothered Sally in that moment. And Meg Ryan is tremendous in this movie. Mm-hmm. Just the fact that her career didn't quite, you know, she didn't have a long, long career. It doesn't matter. She is killer in this movie. She is funny and she is touching and she's wonderful. And that, that is my favorite scene in the movie of hers. I think she is really great in this movie. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the counter to that scene, not to your argument, because your argument is absolutely 100% correct. Uh, to that scene though, where Billy Crystal kind of takes it on his shoulders in the scene when they're in, uh, I don't even remember what store it is. It would be currently it would be Brookside, uh, but I don't know what it was in the in the show. Uh, when they gets the karaoke machine and they're singing oh, right. Surrey with a fringe, and he sees his ex wife with Ira, and you know he he just they they see each other, they greet each other, and then they walk away, and he's smoldering. Yep, and he's just so upset, and then he just finally lets it out, and then you find yourself singing Surrey with a fringe in front of Ira. Yeah. It's just oh, yeah. such a good scene. Billy Crystal in that moment, in a couple of moments, can really bring the really angry energy. Again, he's not someone that you think of necessarily in, the, in that way, but he gets a real intensity. And the argument that he has with Sally is great because she that's – an, that's another thing I think this movie uh, does really well is that Sally has a view of sex that is pretty sophisticated – I think movies tend to have very binary views of sex where you're either a hound dog or you're a prude. And Sally's in the middle. Yeah, she's neither. Sally is okay with having sex outside of marriage, but she doesn't want to just sleep around. And she refers to the kind of sex that Harry has as like – it's like you're out for revenge or something. And she gets very forceful where she says, I will make love when that's when – when it is making love. And she gets mad at that moment. And then Harry apologizes. But that's another great moment where she, you know, she has a nuanced view of sexual congress between people. That's a terrible phrase. It sounds so boring. But she has a, <laughs> she has a very she has a very nuanced view of of sex, which is another thing I appreciated because movies tend to not do that. You know what I mean? 
Yes, I agree totally. And, and, you know, I don't think we're going to disagree on anything about this movie, but, uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it is a more sophisticated look and it kind of goes with what we've been saying all along that this movie didn't just throw something together. They really did think about the attitudes and they, you know, to whatever extent they put together a character Bible for each character, they stayed true to them through the whole movie. And I think, you know, it, it shows when they, when they do finally have that moment. And I guess it is when she's all upset about her relationship breaking up with Joe and she needs somebody there with them and they end up sleeping together. And then that creates a tension between them that they just kind of can't get past initially. Right. Right. Cause Harry just freaks out. He just completely freaks out. And they have, there's that great shot of them post the night before the morning after the night before, as it were, and she looks comfortable and her hair is all tousled and her voice is all kind of sultry or whatever. And and Harry looks like he's a, just been hit by a train. I mean, he's just like completely terrified. And again, we can all speak to that necessarily. And then, of course, he makes it worse by barreling the hell out of there as fast as you can. Yeah. And then he, you know, he, he tries to do the almost the the anti one night stand thing. Well, I'll take you out to dinner, whatever. But like she knows it's not natural. Yep. He's not. He's not doing it because it's what he wants to do. It's because he's he's doing it because it's what he what he feels he's supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. All of a sudden, they're very stiff around one another, and to that point, they've been very close. And so he's all of a sudden putting up that wall, and she senses it because it's like, wait a minute, you don't talk to me like this. You know, like this isn't how we communicate. So what's changed? Well, it's because they've had sex, and I've I've had friendships like that where. For whatever re- like I've had some very, very close friendships with people, and then for whatever reason, something happened in the friendship, and then that person has put up that wall to me, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, we don't talk to each other like that. Like we're being fake now, and we don't we that isn't how we've been, and it's a it's it's a it's a you know it's a it's an invisible barrier, but it's there because it's all of a sudden you're pretending you have a different relationship than the one you had. And it can be a romantic thing or a platonic thing. But I've been through that. I've been through that kind of thing where all of a sudden the person that you were very close with uh, is suddenly not that person. And it's very disconcerting. And you can see why Sally completely freaks out. I mean, that the, the scene, again, I go on about Meg Ryan, but the scene before where they sleep together, she is so funny in that scene where she starts crying uncontrollably about where she's going to be and I'm going to be 40 you know, someday, like, when? someday <laughs> in eight years, you know, and she looks at it like it's this big brick wall, you know, and she's, she's so funny. Crying is, is hard to do. And again, she's, she's tremendous. And just, just cause I don't want to pass it up without mentioning it. Not that it has any real significance in the movie, but just my favorite thing that always makes me laugh and that I do use in conversations. And I get a kick out of when people recognize it when I use it is baby fish mouth. Baby fish. <laughs> so draw something that resembles anything. <laughs> yeah, and if anybody hasn't seen the movie, I'm assuming everybody that's listening to this has seen it, but they play charades and she just, she's trying to get them to say baby talk. So she draws a baby's face and then she has lines coming out of the mouth. And Bruno Kirby, he yells, oh, I guess his baby fish mouth. Baby fish mouth. Baby fish mouth. <laughs> and he says baby it like three talk. times, I think. Baby talk. That's not a phrase. Oh well, yeah, baby fish mouth is is that's a, that is another great moment where we get an insight to how women talk because um, Sally is talking to Marie about Harry's new girlfriend, and she's like, "What's she like?" And Marie just goes, "Thin, pretty, big tits. Your basic nightmare." And you know, like I mm. imagine that's how women talk. We my well, men are like, "Yeah, sounds good to me." <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, that that takes place all before this. And I think it's a little turnaround personality-wise, and I think it works really well, that Harry comes to grips with how he really feels quicker than Sally does. He's trying to make amends. He's calling her. He's chasing her down. And she's saying, I don't want to do this. Meanwhile, at this point, I think, you know, as, as the viewing audience, we all know that they are in love with each other now. Right. But he's... Yeah. He's kind of come to understand that. I don't know if he's willing to declare it yet, but I think he comes to an understanding that he needs that relationship to come back. And she's trying to move on because I think she's afraid it's not going to come to what it should be. And that's me reading into it. Yeah, he, he realizes that, you know, he, he can't 
like he wants to be around her all the time. And that's, I mean, that's, that's what, and he obviously, they obviously have a sexual chemistry, but they have their genuine friendship. And that's, that's a, a hard thing to, to pull off. And so there's a, there's a line in there where he, he the, the, the montage where he's trying to get in contact with her and he leaves a message for her. And he has a line in one of his phone messages that I still use to this day where he's like, uh, you're not returning my call. You either aren't getting these messages uh, B, you are getting these messages and you don't want to call me back. Or C, you do want to respond, but you're trapped under something heavy. I think I still <laughs> use that to this day when I talk about someone. I'm like, are you trapped under something heavy? I still say that to, to this day. Now, when they eventually do get together, he hits on one of the best lines that I, I can think of as far as best written lines. It's when, when you realize who you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want the rest of your life to start now. Yep. It's a, and that, that's it's a great, great line. Yep. It is a great moment. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely true. So, overall, uh, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the casting in this movie, and I just think it's excellent. Uh, Joe was played by, uh, let's see if they have the actor's name in here, uh, Stephen Ford, who is the son of Gerald Ford. I did not know that. Okay. I only know that because I heard... Rob Reiner's commentary. <laughs> okay. Wow. That's a random factoid. Jeez. Son of Gerald Ford. Okay. Then we have uh, the scene in the uh, in Katz's Delicatessen, which uh, I believe Katz has uh, closed yes. recently, but is a very famous deli that was around for a long, long time. I have had pastrami there, and it is very good, or at least it <laughs> was very good. Um, and she, Sally, Sally demonstrates how, how a woman can fake an orgasm. Uh, and I think that's probably the most famous scene in the movie. Yes, abs- yes, good because Harry insists that he would know when a woman is faking an orgasm. There's no way a woman could fake one on him. Now, Rob Reiner discussed the fact that uh, he, when when they first started filming that, Meg Ryan was a little inhibited on how to do it. She wasn't quite really hitting the peak as the way she does in the final scene, and that he was actually showing her how to do it. He was acting <laughs> it out himself. <laughs> Which, which just must be, you'd love to see the outtakes on that. Uh, and that giant, giant, fat, bald Rob Reiner faking an orgasm. As a woman. As a woman, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I want uh, to and then the woman who eventually says, I'll have what she's having, is his mom, Estelle right. Reiner. Which, that's a well-known, uh, well-known trivia fact, but it's still kind of cool as far as I'm concerned. What a, what a gimme for her. Like, she wasn't an actress, and yet she gets one of the most famous lines in all of cinema. You know, like yeah. that's amazing. She has this famous husband and this famous son, and yet she gets a line that probably more people know than than anything Carl Reiner's ever done is probably that line that she has. That's almost sad to think of it that way. <laughs> I I didn't mean to, but I mean it's it, you know that that scene is so iconic. It's just it's amazing. Wait, did I say? Oh yeah, Estelle Reiner. Apparently, I don't even know who this is. Uh, Emily must be one of the friends of. Uh, of that's, Sally. That's, that's no, that's Harry's new girlfriend. When they do, when they have the, um, when they play charades. Okay, that's Tracy Reiner. She's the daughter of. It says daughter of filmmaker Penny Marshall, adopted by Marshall's second husband, filmmaker Rob Reiner, taking that's the Reiner family name. Huh. Interesting. So that, she, that's she, that's a fact I just discovered as we're sitting here talking. She's she's the one that's that that Marie refers to as being thin, pretty, big tits. That's oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's Estella's the mom, and uh, yeah, she passed away at 94 years old in 2008. And uh, Carl Reiner still is with still us. alive. He's on Twitter. At He's 94 out on Twitter. years old. Yeah, I, I yeah, I, a lot of longevity in that family. Good for them. And well, you think about the uh, the comedy pairing of uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, and they're both still with us. Isn't that amazing? They get together. I've, I've, I've heard them talk about that. They get together like every night and watch old movies together. Oh, that's great. You love to yeah. hear about partnerships like that where they truly are uh, that friendly. And just going off on tangents here. Oh, uh, somebody I, make that a podcast. Just record those conversations every night. Oh, I wish. Every Christmas. I, uh, I, I always liked the story I heard, whether it's apocryphal or reality, I can tell you for sure. But uh, that after Oliver Hardy died, Stan Laurel refused to ever be in another movie. I guess I have heard that. He always wanted to be known as the guy standing next to uh, Oliver Hardy. He didn't want to be 
a sad old man, not know, not knowing when to get off the stage. Yes. So I, I, I kind of like that when they when they they kind of acknowledge that kinship to each other. But I don't want to go too far afield on this. <laughs> um, one of the things that this movie did was it gave me such an appreciation for musical standards that I had not had. And that's all at the feet of Harry Connick Jr. After I saw this movie, I started to become a big Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., Tony Bennett, a fan of all that music. And it was through this, you know, the soundtrack of this movie going into some of the old standards and, you know, kind of redoing them with this piano style. And I just thought it was a wonderful mix with the feel of this movie just overall. It kept it kind of lighthearted, even though the su- subject matter, as we've talked about, was very serious in many ways. And I'm curious, you're a little younger than I am, and I'm curious what you think of the music and how how you, know, how you received it. Um, the music itself doesn't do a whole much for me, uh, but I, I can understand, like, in the context of it, because, you know, I get the sense Reiner is trying to make... You know, like a, a modern version of a classic, you know, romantic comedy. I mean, this would be something that, you know, I mean, you can get aside from the, you know, the more sort of earthy language. This would, would have been something with, you know, Rosalind Russell and Cary Grant, mm-hmm. you know, or, or Doris Day and, uh, you know, Rock Hudson. Yeah. Or James Gardner. So this is a modern version of it. So I'm assuming that the soundtrack is a bit of a throwback to that, of, of that, to give it that slightly old timey feel plus billy crystal's humor is kind of an old timey you know vaudeville kind of tumbler sort of persona you know it's like set up joke set up joke so you know i think the music sort of fits that that persona and the you know he's a he's a um i forget what he does for a living but she's a they kind of had like they have sort of classic jobs like they don't have modern jobs it's not like he's a you know internet reporter although the internet didn't exist in 1990 of course but i mean it just it has that you know, to me, that's what Reiner's trying to do, and I think the music is is a is part of that. Yeah, I think giving it the old time music somehow has a rubber band effect and gives the movie a timeless feel. Yeah, it, I would it say it keeps so. it from feeling dated because it's it's almost like when you see a period piece, it shouldn't feel dated because it's always going to be in that period. Mm-hmm. And this movie kind of has that feel for me, and I think the music adds to that. And it certainly made a huge star out of Harry Connick Jr., who was a virtual unknown at the point when this movie came out. Yeah, it really put him on the map. Yeah, I mean, this this was a hugely successful movie. This was a, every, all the way around. It made a ton of money. I think it was nominated for at least one Oscar. Uh, and it, you know, it, it became part of the lexicon after that. Well, I'm going to ask you now. Do you know how much they paid to make it? And do you know how much money it made? I do not. You always ask these questions, and I'm never prepared for these. So I'm I glad not you're not know. prepared. I'd rather have yeah. you guess than you tell me, oh, I read it, and this is what it is, because I can tell I'm you I gonna, read it. All right. <laughs> I'm going to guess it made, like, we're talking 1989 money. It probably made like 80, 90 million, which back then would have been a huge amount of money. That is so, you're, you're so close to on the money on that that, that it's scary. It, the box office is listed at 92.8 million. Look at that. Oh, man. I'm going to go on prices right. Yeah, you didn't even go over. Nope. <laughs> what do you think for budget? Oh, it probably was not a lot of money. I would say this is probably like a $20 million movie, maybe not even that much. Okay, Your, your guesses are so much more close than mine would have been. Uh, $16 million budget. Look at that. See, I could be a Hollywood producer. Oh, I think I so probably would have guessed about $10 million on the budget, which I would have been much more off than you. And I would have guessed like $125 million on the box office. So I would have been way off, and you you blew me away on that. Uh, you spend sixteen and you make $90? Any, anybody would take that deal. Yeah, well, isn't the, uh, isn't the formula currently two and a half times the... Uh, the, the budget? I think so. Yeah, I think that's the the, the crooked formula in Hollywood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. I think that's what it is. So I guess forty million would have made it a success, and it made more than double that. I'm uh, just looking quickly while we're talking about it. It's under awards. Nora Ephron received an Oscar nomination and a Writers Guild of America Award nomination for a screenplay. She won a British Academy Film Award for Best Original Screenplay and was nominated for Best Film. Rob Reiner was nominated as an Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures for the Directors Guild. Film was also nominated for five Golden Globes, including 
Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, Reiner for Best Director, Motion Picture, Billy Crystal for Best Actor, Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, Meg Ryan for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, and Nora Ephron for Best Screenplay. I guess it did not get any Academy Award uh, recognition, but I've gone on record of late saying from right about 1980 to current day, I've kind of lost some of my respect for the Academy Awards because I feel like they've gone from trying to award the best picture to trying to award the most artsy and pretentious picture. (laughs) I look at the movies that won the Academy Award in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There are some outliers there, but I think most of the time they tried to get not only the best picture, but the best picture that was also the most entertaining. And I don't think they try that anymore. I think they're just trying to... I think they, they want to award artsiness, and I'm not too big on that. Well, I mean, I I mean the Hollywood the Oscars have a there's a whole history of films that were never recognized by the Oscars that should have been. That's a that's a very august list. So yes, I agree. Harry Met Harry Met Sally fits quite well in there. As it's just you know there are only so many movies that can nominate at any given time. But yeah, I mean this you know comedies are never considered to be much in the way of you know Oscar nominated you know caliber. And as we all know, it's really difficult to make a funny movie. It's really difficult. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, comedies are never quite as appreciated as they should be. And But this is something, I mean, not only did the movie make a lot of money, as we've seen, it's gone on to be sort of perpetually popular. You know, this is a Sony Pictures movie, and they can, they've been making money off this movie forever because they re-released new versions of it and they put it out on Blu-ray. And so, you know, not only was it successful at the time, but it's an evergreen title. It's a movie that they're always going to make money from. It's on Hulu right now. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a little profit center for the studio in perpetuity. And, you know, that's a, every, every movie studio wants to make a movie like that. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, just to finish my tangent on the Academy Awards a little bit, and I don't want to go too far afield with that. My first feeling of dissatisfaction with the Academy Awards was around 1990 when I was reading somewhere uh, the lists of the top 10 movies of the 80s. You know, Gene Siskel, Roger Ebert, all these people putting out, you know, at the end of the decade, what were the top 10 movies? And almost universally, Raging Bull was considered to be the top movie of the 1980s. And it did not win the Academy Award the year it came out. No, so it was it the best not. movie of the decade, but not of that year. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and that's it's, what it's... kind of started making me think about it a little bit more. And then I started saying, yeah, movies like Chariots of Fire, Out of Africa. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't, I don't want to go too far with that. Uh, you know, maybe, one day we'll, maybe one day we'll do an Oscar uh, show and I'll, I'll ask you to come on again. And we could talk about some of the most uh, underappreciated Oscar movies. I think it would yeah, be, I mean, I really, yeah, fun. I enjoy watching the Oscars every year, but every so often they get one where I'm like, what? Come on. You know, that kind of thing. It, it, it does happen every so often. So uh, the thing, one of the things about this movie that I've heard from numerous people who are movie fans, and I'm curious what you think about it, and I'm kind of putting you on the spot here because we have not discussed this, you and I. Uh-huh. A lot of people feel this movie is derivative of Annie Hall. Um. And- and I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. No, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, you know, Woody Allen doesn't own romantic comedy set in New York. You know, he doesn't. I mean, he really patented it because Annie Hall is a masterpiece. Um, but no, I, I don't I don't think that that's particularly fair observation. Uh, the, I mean, Annie Hall is mostly from Woody's point of view. I mean, despite that the movie is titled Annie Hall, Annie is not, to me, uh, of equal footing character-wise as it is with Woody. I mean, it's Woody's movie. It's from Woody's perspective. Um, And it's much more scattershot. Uh, I mean, there's an animated sequence, and there's a a scene where a character puts a a, a hoodie on to protect himself from the sun rays. He's like, what are we driving to plutonium? You know? I mean, there's all that stuff. There's flashbacks. There's all sorts of, you know, crazy little cinematic tricks in that movie. And and uh, and Harry Met Sally to me is much more straightforward. So no, I wouldn't agree with that at all. Uh, I just you know, it's it's an observational comedy set in New York. Well, New York, you know, New York's one of the you know one of the big cities in history. So of course you're going to place a romantic comedy there. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. Okay. And I don't I don't disagree with you. 
Uh, but I've heard that comparison a number of times. And I do think there are certain overlaps. The the fact of using standards in the uh, standards and jazz type music yeah, in, in the soundtrack, the New York background, the, you know, just kind of some of the ups and downs of the relationship and the way they looked at. Uh, I, I do see similarities, but I also agree with you that I don't think <laughs> I don't think Woody Allen is the only person to ever make a rom-com. And I don't think he, you know. I don't think he'd be successful in any sort of copyright dispute on this thing. No. Yeah. I mean, Woody Allen wasn't the first guy to do romantic comedy set in New York. So he just happened to do it really, really well. And, and I do feel that they are two different enough movies. Like I could sit and watch either of them and not necessarily like if I watched one and then the next day I watched the other, I wouldn't feel like, oh, I just watched this yesterday. There wouldn't be any of that. Yeah, they, they have different things that, they, that they're trying to say. I mean, Annie Hall, to me, is more about relationships uh, and the futility of them in a lot of ways. And Harry Mattel is much more of a rosy point of view. And uh, it's much more, I'd say, about those two specific characters and what sets them apart. And I love all that we didn't even mention this, all the little faux documentary inserts mm-hmm. in this movie of real life couples like that's very sweet i love all that stuff about i'm glad you brought that up I yeah the, the way the way couples can come together in strange ways now those are according to rob reiner those are all real stories right but they're but actors. they are actors that are portraying right. the parts right uh, and it's, but, it comes across as very real yeah they they had the real people come in and they filmed them with these stories and unfortunately, they didn't feel that the real people captured the screen the way they wanted them to. Sure. And and did, weren't able to deliver the stories in in a way to keep you gripped to, to, to actually hear the payoff at the end of each story. So they had to have actors come in and, and do it. But the stories are all legitimate. So yeah, they're very they're very good. They're very powerful. Yeah. And then then you end the movie with Billy and oh Billy Harry and Sally doing their documentary take on how they got together. Yes. Where he's finally accepted her. And another piece of uh, dialogue from this movie that I, that I use to this day. In fact, I used it today, which was the whole bit about uh, you're the worst. You're, you're, you're the worst of both worlds. You're high maintenance, but you think you're low maintenance. That is a very, very true statement (laughs) about uh, whether you can apply to a person or a company or, or anybody uh, but but I love at the end that where ha- Harry has finally accepted and even uh, internalized some of Sally's high maintenance issues. I think that's it's very sweet because you do that when you're in a relationship. After a while, you start to just accept some of the things that, you know, because that that's who the that's who your partner is. And you have to just accept it. Yeah, that's something, you know, when uh, I, 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 I don't want to get too personal on things, but, but I remember when I was getting married and uh you meet with people uh, to get married in the church. You have to do pre-cana, uh, which is you know the the get where you get together with people who talk about marriage and what you should expect, and they just want to kind of open your eyes to what it's like and everything. And one of the things that they said back then was, "Does anybody here have any expectation that there's a problem with the person you're marrying, but they'll change? Because mm-hmm. if you think that, you're wrong." Yep. And and I you know I kind of said okay I have to be willing to accept her her faults her pluses her minuses whatever you know I took that to heart I said that you know that's probably good advice but I don't think it's entirely accurate because I do think you change and I think the way Billy Crystal portrays it here is a sign of that uh, you don't change you don't become a different person but you adapt to the needs likes wants of your partner. If you're a good partner, you do, because it's not all about you at all times. So you have to be willing to say, okay, this is a person I love, and this is the way they feel. Let me see, you know, if I can accept that. And sometimes you have to accept their ways of thinking. I don't even want to say shortcomings. Uh, Their ways of looking at things, and sometimes they have to accept yours. So it's another way that this movie just got very realistic, as far as I'm concerned, with a successful couple. You know, mm-hmm. if you if you can never accept the other way, person's way of looking at things, then you will never be a successful couple. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then said the relationships I've had pre 
uh, the one I'm in now, I mean, you know, yeah, I couldn't eventually accept those things, but then I finally was like, oh no, this is, this is one that works. And so luckily <laughs> she feels the same way about me because I'm sure I have all my little various things here and there. So in fact, if nothing, but uh, she tolerates my podcasting schedule. <laughs> if nothing else, that's, I think the, the women who love us certainly uh, put up with a lot when it comes to that mm-hmm. and they have to be tolerant of it. And you know, that's, thank you. <laughs> that's all I can say to that so uh, I don't know if you have anything else to add before we get to the final thoughts on this um, I guess I just want to mention a little bit more about Carrie Fisher which is sort of how we got here in the first place with sure, Carrie Fisher is, this is really her last great performance she was in movies after this but this was really the last sort of big ticket movie that she was in and where she's a co-star and you know she I don't she at this point had kind of moved into a writing career and so I, I get the sense she did movies when she sort of felt like it. It wasn't because she was desperate to go do, you know, movies. But she is she's a, a classic supporting actress here. The, the classic best friend, the smart ass best friend. She's really, really funny. And I love the fact that it's this movie that uh, Turner Classic Movies uses a clip from for their memorial reel uh, because it's the scene of uh, her and Sally in the bookstore. And she points out. Uh, she's like, someone is staring at you from personal growth. And of course, it's Harry. And they go over to say Harry and say, say hello to Harry because it's been a couple of years. And she turns to introduce her friend Marie. And when you turn around, Marie is already headed down the stairs, forcing Harry and Sally to talk. And it's a shot of Carrie Fisher waving goodbye. And it's Meg Ryan goes, you know, that this is Mar- that was Marie. And it's that shot of Carrie Fisher descending the staircase and, and walking at a frame that Turner Classic Movies uses to end their memorial role for her when it came out. So uh, uh, if nothing else, it gave us that little moment. Yeah, when I think of Carrie Fisher, I, you know, I, obviously I don't know her. I never met her. But when I think of what I perceive her personality as being, this movie kind of is it. This is the way mm-hmm. I picture her really being. Now, that's either because she was such a great actress that she embodied this role so much that it seems like it was real or maybe that's what she was. Maybe it just fit her like a glove. I'm not sure. Uh, If anybody hasn't seen it, there was an HBO special that they were working on before Carrie Fisher passed away. And it came out just after she and her mom passed away about her and her mom. I don't know if you've seen it yet, Rob. I have not. No, but yeah, I I do want to see it. I I would recommend it highly. I watched it and it's, it's very interesting to see. Uh, And just, the one thing that I just found fascinating was back in the, I guess, early 70s when Carrie Fisher was like 13 years old, uh, she, Debbie Reynolds had a, like a Vegas lounge act and she'd get up and she'd sing and dance or whatever and she'd bring Carrie Fisher out to sing. Now, first of all, she actually had a good singing voice back then. And second of all, the clip that they show of her singing is her singing Bridge Over Troubled Water. Right. <laughs> which I just find so ironic and almost touching, considering 10 years later she was married to Paul Simon. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? What with this crazy random world of Hollywood. She, she, she led an amazing life uh, from day one. I mean, when, you're, when your parents' marriage is broken up by Elizabeth Taylor, you're not going to lead a regular life. And even if she had never been in Star Wars, she would have had a very unusual life. And then on top of it, she happened to be one of the stars of the most famous movie franchise probably in history. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's said that she's gone. Uh, you know, again, I don't know, never knew her, never will. But from all accounts that I've heard of people who've met her at conventions, I've always heard that she was always very friendly, very nice to people, very welcoming. And that's the way I want to picture her. And her, her in this movie as uh, Marie kind of fits that role for me. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy this movie because it's the characterization of her and Jesse, Bruno Kirby in this movie just adds to the fullness, the richness of this story. Yep. I could have watched a whole Jess and Marie movie or, or, or like a show. If they decided to do a TV spinoff and it was just Jess and Marie, just Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher being a couple, I would have watched that show. Yeah, Absolutely. So now comes the time where I got to ask you the big question, Rob. Is it yours? And as I know you get a kick out of, I will be giving the Jaws scale and explaining to everybody. Uh, 
Yeah, go ahead. Keep laughing. Fuzzball. <laughs> I just, I just like that. I just like that you've hitched your show to this very complicated rating system, and now you're stuck with it. I find that pretty funny. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't mind it. So it's okay, and you can laugh, and you can have as much fun with it as you like. But uh, these are not my true jaws ratings of the movies. And if you really want to know my true ratings, then listen to the show Rob and I did, whatever six months ago or so. Uh, but as far as the rating system goes, if you rated Jaws, you're saying it's an all-time classic, a great movie, almost, almost flawless. If you say Jaws 2, you're saying a very, very good movie, worth repeated viewings and just enjoyable, but, you know, not quite at that level of a classic. Jaws 3, watchable, entertaining, but nothing special. Jaws 4, a bomb. And I think we already know neither of us is saying Jaws 4 on this. I think you could already say neither of us is saying Jaws 3. So the question I have for you, Rob, is it Jaws or is it Jaws 2? It is Jaws. I'd say this is Jaws. Is it is it to the level of cinematic achievement of Jaws? No, but very few things are. But it is in the uh, in the genre of romantic comedies. It is one of the greatest. In fact, if you can go to Google right now and you type in romantic comedies and it shows you like ten posters. When Harry Met Sally is the first poster that comes up, and it, this movie is thirty years old by now. There have been how many romantic comedies since? And it is still the first poster that comes up. So in in its in its genre, this is Jaws. Uh, I am very quick to agree with you on that. Uh, and I and I wasn't going into this when I asked you if you wanted to be on the show. I hadn't seen this in probably I don't know maybe three or four years, and I was thinking it was probably going to be a Jaws two for me. Having watched it again, having it look, having looked at it with that critical eye, while if I was making my list of the best, you know, my top ten movies of all time, my top fifteen movies of all time, I don't, it's not making the list, but it is supremely entertaining, and it is virtually flawless as far as I'm concerned, and it is, it stands up to rewatching over and over and over again, and certainly that puts it on somewhere on the list of best movies of all time, and while you were giving your rating, I put in romantic comedy in Google and first picture is when Harry met Sally. There you go. So no, no question about it. This is, this is just a great movie and I got to give it the Jaws scale. Go ahead. Give it the Jaws rating. And I want to say thanks for coming on with me again, Rob. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I will pull back the curtain a little bit. The, uh, Paul talked about doing this a while ago, but my schedule was just rec- impossible to deal with. But he kept it up, and I even said, if you want to go ahead and do the show without me. But he, he was very kind to say, no, 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 I'll wait for you. And then so finally I got ready, and I'm really glad we got a chance to talk about it. Because I the, I wanted to, to, to kind of cover some Carrie Fisher movies on film and water, but we just didn't get around to it. So we did the memorial episode. But I wanted to talk about one of her non-Star Wars movies. And so I'm really glad that we had a chance to do it. So thank you for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. I always enjoy talking to you. And let's – uh. We've talked a little bit about film and water, but you do more than that. So why don't you tell everybody? I do way too many podcasts. You can find them all over at the Film and Water website, which is filmandwaterpodcast.com. I do Film and Water. You mean fireandwaterpodcast.com? Fire. Well, I do. I do Film – what did I say? You said Film and Water. Oh, it's Freudian slip. Yeah, no, fireandwaterpodcast.com. And there I do – I'm the co-host of the Fire and Water podcast. I'm the host of the Film and Water podcast. I'm the host of Treasury Cast co-host of Digest Cast, co-host of Who's Who, and co-host of Power Records Podcast. They don't all come out at the same time, so if you subscribe <laughs> to the feed, uh, you'll get lots of other shows that don't involve me talking. I only do three shows, and I feel like I'm overwhelmed, so I don't know how you manage it. I don't know either. Oh, you, you, did, you also didn't mention uh, Pod Dylan just now. Oh, I do. Oh, God, I forgot about that. Yeah, about once a month I do Pod Dylan. So, yeah, and, and I'm still waiting for you to start the MASH Podcast. I, don't know, I hate to say that's not going to happen, but it probably will happen. So <laughs> I'm an idiot. We'll see. But when when you when you put it out, I will listen to it. And uh-huh. like I told, like I said at the beginning, anybody who's not already listening to Rob's stuff, absolutely they should because it's all great. Thank you very much. And good night, everybody. Uh, before we cut off, uh, Jaws Podcast at Gmail dot com. That's where you can send us your, your feedback, your thoughts, movies you'd like us to cover, uh, whether you agree with us, don't agree with us. I'd be curious to hear what you think. So thank you, everyone, and good night. I went through his pockets, okay? Marie, why do you go through his pockets? You know what I found? No, what? They just bought a dining room table. He and his wife just went out and spent $1,600 on a dining room table. Where? The point isn't where, Alice. The point is he's never going to leave her. So what else is new? You've known this for two years. 
You're right. You're right. I know you're right. Why can't you find someone single? When I was single, I knew lots of nice single men. There must be someone. Sally found someone. Well, Sally got the last good one. Joe and I broke up. What? When? Monday. You waited three days to you tell Joe's us? Joe's available? Well, for God's sakes, Marie, don't you have any feelings about this? She's obviously upset. I'm not that upset. We've been growing apart for quite a while. But you guys were a couple. You had someone to go places with. You had a date on national holidays. I said to myself, you deserve more than this. You're 31 years old. And the clock is ticking. No, the clock doesn't really start to tick until you're 36. God, you're in such great shape. Well, I've had a few days to get used to it, and uh, I feel okay. Good. Then you're ready. Really, Marie? Well, how else do you think you do it? I've got the perfect guy. I don't happen to find him attractive, but you might. She doesn't have a problem with chins. Marie, I'm not ready yet. But you just said you were over him. I am over him, but I'm in a mourning period. Who is it? Alex Anderson. Oh! You fixed me up with him six years ago. <laughs> Sorry. God. All right, wait, here. Here we go. Ken Darman. He's been married for over a year. Really? Married. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Look, I got one. There is no point in my going out with someone I might really like if I met him at the right time, but who right now has no chance of being anything to me but a transitional man. Okay. But don't wait too long. Remember what happened with David Warsaw? His wife left him and everyone said, give him some time, don't move in too fast. Six months later, he was dead. What are you saying? I should get married to someone right away in case he's about to die? At least you could say you were married. I'm saying that the right man for you might be out there right now. And if you don't grab him, someone else will. And you'll have to spend the rest of your life knowing that someone else is married to your husband. <laughs> 